0: Welcome to Chapter Tactics, this is the 40k podcast that focuses on playing warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I am your host, Mr. Petey Pop, and with me I have the three caballeros, amigos, regular co-hosts, three of my partners in crime, Scarry from Scardcast.
1: Hello, two years of creating content, full-time anniversary this week, so... Really oh excited my gosh. about
0: Congratulations. that! Congratulations, those of yeah. you
1: don't
0: know, Skari went full time into the 40k content with Scardcast, and I was so proud of him when he made that leap back then, and now he's been doing it for two years.
1: Yeah, so, two years. It was it was like a it was a cool reminiscing time uh, this Sunday actually. Yeah, so I'm, uh, yeah, that was awesome.
0: Let's give him a round of applause in the comment section below now. <laughs>
1: Why, thank you, thank you, thank you, you don't have to, thank Thousands you. of people are, are <laughs> applauding right now,
0: hopefully not while they are driving. <laughs> we also have Sean, I write articles every day on FrontlineGaming.org.
2: Morgan? Hello. I don't know if every day is the phrase I would use, but close every enough. Every hour, Good enough. every minute? Whoa, whoa, I... I, I think I should be making more money than I am, if that's the case. <laughs> he Sean writes a lot of articles for Frontline. He's been around for
0: a very long time, uh, and he knows a lot of stuff about 40k, more than I ever knew. So, of course, Sean I had him on before. And then finally, we've got Brandon, the I swear I was a really good 40k player, Grant.
3: Yeah. Thanks for that uh, warm welcome, Pablo. I'm excited <laughs> about the topic today. Why don't you tell us about it?
0: Let's go ahead and talk about it. Of course, I'm just joking. Brandon Grant is our resident top eighter ITC championship. He's the the uh, credibility that the podcast so desperately needs. So thank you guys for coming on. Uh, we're going to be talking about what your roles are today, which is kind of why I uh, kind of expanded a little bit on the co-host's three roles there. Ah. Uh? see what I did there, Um, because today's episode is titled Know Your Roles. We're going to be talking about the roles that units play in your 40-key army list and how to take advantage of those roles and how to identify them to win your games. That's right. This episode, we're going to be talking tactics and strategy, and I am actually going to kind of know what I'm talking about this episode because I also went to an RTT this past weekend where I went 3-0, uh, I'm not trying to brag or anything, because a 3-0 in our is like the equivalent of going 1-5 at the LVO, but <laughs> finally played some tournaments. Uh, I have a more understanding of what competitive, you know, play looks like in Ninth edition, um, and then I have little kind of thoughts on the edition and how to play it as well, too. So we're going to talk about that.
1: Don't sell yourself short, Pablo. You know, after everything that we've been going through... Going to an RTT, playing games, or being able to sort of participate and doing well—like that's what we expect from you.
0: Ooh, thank you, thank you, Scar. I—I I will say I did play Space Marines. Um, and that's, uh, it quick... doesn't matter what you play. <laughs> so just, uh, just, just kind
3: no. of good job. No. <laughs> good job.
1: Thank good you. Job, okay? Good but... job. Okay. Good job. Pat yourself on the back. Don't let anybody steal your your fire. Okay. This is uh, your moment.
0: I will say that. Uh, There were some dice rolls that didn't go my way um, that were mitigated heavily by some pretty solid units in the Space Marine faction. But that's illusion. We'll we'll get to that when we talk about the RTT. Uh, Before we begin, remember to head on over to frontlinegaming.org. They are the sponsors of this episode and the entire podcast and the entire network for that matter. Um, So buy stuff from frontlinegaming.org. You can support us on Patreon, uh, where you can catch me streaming live. Whenever I can. This this week I'm gonna try and do it. Wednesday night, we'll be streaming probably some more Among Us or some sort of games with the patrons. So if you want to come hang out, we'll talk forty K, we'll play some uh games, we'll have a great old time. Uh so you can head over patreon.com slash chapter tactics for that good stuff. Now, as I mentioned, I played an RTT this weekend, and I learned something that I really wish I hadn't, and so Before jumping into the main topic, I kind of wanted to talk about this kind of philosophical mentality discussion uh, that we can kind of tackle as a community together. Uh, And that's highlighting an issue that I've seen kind of rear its head a a bit in the past in the previous edition, and I didn't know where we were going as a community in in terms of um, how we responded to it last edition but with this edition it feels like GW is doubling down with what they want uh, how much control and agency they want over a competitive 40k right so they made missions that are very competitive um, they're making more and more balanced match play rules with the exception of the Indominus box I-, I firmly believe that this is going to be one of the most balanced editions of Ninth edition or of uh, 40k um, we will of course obviously have you know broken powerful units uh, and strategies like there in every single game, but it, this edition does feel like GW is moving more and more towards uh, a game that is balanced holistically uh, and one that is very competitive in nature. And they're actually also moving towards uh, highlighting the competitive scene, too, on their Warhammer community articles, uh, in their FAQs and their design commentaries. And so with that being said... I believe they made a um, kind of a serious mistake that was never rectified, and that's in the Seal- Seals of Oath relic for the Ultramarine Supplement. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, the relic before was a relic that you would take, you would put it on a character, and you would elect one unit before the game starts, and all units within six inches of that character, all Ultramarine's units, would get rerolls to hit and to wound against that unit that you selected. So you would pick your opponent's knight or their magnus or whatever, and everyone gets rerolls to hit and wounds against that model. Super cool. Uh, Wasn't that bad of a relic. Now, when 9th edition rolled around and when the supplement FAQs came out, that relic was changed. Uh, It was FAQ'd to only give the buff to core units, which is a totally fine, acceptable uh, change, right? That's something that GW is moving towards anyways. But where they messed up, was instead of it saying the target unit, it says an enemy unit. (laughs) So, raw, rules as written, the rule reads like this. You select an enemy unit before the game begins For when you pick the relic. Then your character that has the relic gives a six-inch re-roll wounds and hits aura to core ultramarine units against any enemy unit. So it gives a full Gilman re-roll, raw. Now, I don't think anyone's going to argue that the intent was for GW to give basically any Ultramarines character the ability to give them an old Gilliman aura. I don't think that was the case, especially because of how much GW has been nerfing specifically rerolls to hit and rerolls to wound across the board for Space Marines and for every faction. So I doubt that's the intent. However, where do we go as a community about this now? Because I'm actually of the firm belief that we should let all rules now uh, lie, meaning if you're a TO, you should at this point you should always go for the the rawest, uh, you know, literal interpretation of the rule because GW is doing a good job of, you know, making sure and rectifying that this kind of stuff doesn't happen. So I'm gonna open the floor to the three of you now. Where do you stand as a TO? Where would you stand as a player with these kind of rules um, in the past? Uh, we have, you know, of course, had players who who uh, played rules a specific way and then TOs kind of like, well, ITC would step in and kind of add their own interpretations. It was always, honestly, it was a little chaotic. Uh, we had, you know, entire communities of people playing a rule that GW wrote uh, completely differently depending on where you were. So, you know, there was obviously some chaos in the past about it. Um, so with this rule in particular and with any rules in the future, how, how do you want... uh to interpret rules going forward as a to or as a player in a tournament
3: i can start us off um everyone can feel free to disagree but based on how you described the rule pablo uh it's very cut and dry you select an enemy unit but then an enemy unit that you're shooting at you get the reroll and hits and wounds bonus so rules as written it's very clear how that's resolved which is Are you targeting an enemy unit? You have met the requirements of the relic. So as a tournament organizer, I think you're free to change that rule for your specific event. But otherwise, unless the TO has said otherwise, you play the rule as close as you can to how it is written. So you have to put on your reading comprehension and go into, okay, what does this say explicitly? And... For those of us who speak English, that's actually a huge advantage because English is a language that if you write it down correctly can only be interpreted one way, which is how this rule. So even though the rule is clearly not working the same way that it did before, rules as written, it's exactly the way it should work, so that's how we have to play it. And I don't like that, but like Pablo said... Games Workshop has been updating their rules far more often than they used to in the heyday of 2015-2016. So, bringing this to their attention, they've been very responsive about coming out with new FAQs, which is great. But in the meantime, that's exactly what the rule says, and that's how you have to play it. I'm
2: actually going to disagree pretty strongly with Brandon there. There is a certain amount of interpretation in virtually every sentence of every book. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but you you have to make certain presumptions and certain interpretations just for rules to make any sense at all, and I don't actually disagree with him in general about, like, you should play the rules as written, because, you know, that's the whole point of the game. Um, But there are usually some pretty obvious cases where a rule diverges heavily from what the designers presumably intended and that that causes a problem for the game because sometimes rules just don't work the way they wanted to and if if that's not causing a problem for the game that's fine you know there's a relic that's supposed to i don't know let you assault out of deep strike with a jump pack and they messed up the wording and it doesn't work right um and that's fine but if you have something like this that causes a very problematic situation in tournaments and in gameplay uh I think that there is a certain duty on the, the players and TOs to step in and say, like, oh, no, this is very abusive. We're not going to allow this because this creates a bad game experience for everyone involved.
1: Um, I think that you know going through with a band hammer tends to have dramatic consequences uh, either way. Um, now, what I'll say about, like, Rules interpretations and things like this is I, as a TO, I'm always looking at precedent. So, you know, I'll always look at is there anything else similar in different codexes, or you know, is it something that is like is going to be abused, is very easily abusable, things like that. Um, And I do understand that the rules don't always get like answered or don't always seem super clear at times so i'll agree with you on that however i do sort of agree with the let it be sort of like mentality in the sense that if you especially if you change it too quickly you know then you end up like getting a position where you start just like well if you're gonna ban that or change that then why don't you change this and why don't you change that and all of a sudden it becomes like a bit of a downward slope where you just start going okay well if so where, where, what don't you want to change? And at that point, well, are you just kind of, like, making your own sort of rule set?
2: But that's just the slippery slope fallacy. I mean, by that interpretation, we should never change any rule ever for any reason.
1: Unless it comes out in an FAQ. I agree.
2: I mean, okay, but, like, then you get the... <laughs> Then you get the nuclear pyrovores of last edition where like, Oh, you killed a pyrovore, Every unit in your army takes D3 mortal wounds. Yeah. I don't and, want to play with that. <laughs> so, so um,
0: to kind of bring it back a little bit from that, because I think everyone here actually raised valid points, which is why I wanted to talk about this uh, because I kind of agree with what you all said. Uh, and this is why we, why I have so much respect for TOS who who, who do this regularly. Um, and make these kind of rulings because it really is a mentality right there there are um there are tos who will flat out say you know this is raw i'm sorry i know it sounds weird that's weird but you know i can't interpret this any other way other than raw unless it's absolutely ambiguous but at the flip side you do have that slippery slope of like well, well, well how far do you want to let raw go do you want you know are you talking like Tempest Landspeeders that gave a flat minus two movement to your opponent's entire army um, because you know GW forgot to add a word into a rule. Um, it's, it's it's such a it's such a weird uh, thing that I wish I wish GW would just automatically take care of so we wouldn't have the, you know this kind of stuff. So, anyways, that's why I wanted to bring it up. Um, I'm curious, you know, now that you've heard all of this talk about it, I'm curious to hear what you all think in the comment section down below. Um, do you think that a TO should um, take interpretations uh, and uh, steps to interpret how they think the rule should be, um, maybe at the, to the detriment of Raw? And uh, to kind of add it, I just want to add a quick example here of a, kind of an opposite scenario. Um, with the Silent King and with the Necrons, there's actually a lot of arguing in the Necron Facebook group right now um, as to whether the Silent King can benefit from his dynastic codes or not, uh, because he has the Shere Khan Dynasty keyword and he also has the dynastic the dynastic agents keyword. Uh, now the dynastic agents keyword makes it so you can't benefit from codes. It's pretty clear cut to me. However, uh, the having the sharecon keyword would technically make it so that he does get the codes um so i i get that there's like this kind of weird gray area and people are arguing back and forth like like oh the silent king he deserves to have his own rules and then we have a couple of people saying they're like beta play testers and they've talked to jw and and has told them like it's a, it's a bit of a mess to be honest i think it's important ultimately to uh, if you're a TO, to decide on what you think is the best for your game and to be consistent, um, regardless of which stance you take. I think that's, if you're the TO and you're listening to this, I think that's probably the most important thing to do. Um, but I was kind of curious to hear what where the community was as a whole. Um, does the community meet, lean more towards, specifically with the seals of vote stratagem? Um, because I don't think anyone's arguing that it wasn't intended to, to give full rerolls to hit and to wounds um or was intended to give full rules i don't think anyone's arguing that it was because it clearly wasn't because Mm -hmm. why wouldn't you omit the first sentence where you pick a unit you still have to pick a unit anyways so i just want to know where the general community is on this issue specifically uh do you believe are you a rules as intended person uh do you believe that it's the duty of tos and players to interpret rules uh where rules aren't aren't clear or where they're creating a bad or um uh, abusive game state or toxic game game state, or do you believe in some? Do you believe in just rules as written? Uh, we need to interpret it this way because this is how GW wrote them, and then we just need to like tell GW, hey, you're, we think your rules wrong. What did you mean here? Um, and then obviously, uh, little wagging of the finger at GW for missing this in an FAQ, uh, and then a follow up FAQ again. Um, I, I I wish it had been. No- I wish they had known about it. Before my RTT, because this is where I found out this ruling uh, was at this RTT, and so moving on to the RTT results. Uh, so those of you who don't know, I played in an RTT this past weekend. Uh, I went uh, with some white scars. I didn't have enough time to to build and paint Necrons, um, mostly build uh, paint. There were no paint requirements, so everyone was down ten points going into the the tournament, which is no big deal. Uh, so I took white scars. Uh, they were already a list that I had. Kind of already halfway made. I just assembled some Eradicators and Outrider bikes because, of course, I did. Uh, And I took a a pretty, kind of pretty standard White Scars list. It was limited a little bit by what models I had already available uh, because I just decided on White Scars right before the tournament, like um, maybe three days before the tournament. And so my list was simply just a patrol detachment with Intercessors, a Chapter Master in Gravis armor. Uh, so, you never see at all uh, two company veteran units, and then a White Scars Outrider detachment with a Smash Captain on a bike, a Librarian with those really amazing White Scars powers, uh, an Apothecary, a six man Centurion Assault Squad with Meltaguns, because mine are modeled with Meltaguns, and the tournament was a WYSIWYG. So, that's why I didn't take the Flamers, although I, I think I'm kind of glad i spent the 30 points of the Meltaguns, because they actually did pretty well. Uh, three units of scout bike squads with stormbolter sergeants, three outrider squads, and then two three-man eradicators with multi meltas, um, because they are just so so good. So that was it. That was the White Scars list. It spent a ton of command points early on. I think seven command points pre-game on relics and the outrider detachment and warlord traits. Um, looking back on it, I would have definitely uh, tried to fit a primaris chaplain on a bike. Because that model is absolutely broken and amazing, uh, and I probably would have tried to find more room for company veterans, um, which we'll talk about why later in the podcast. Because they do fill a very specific role in lists, and specifically this list, um, that I didn't know would be as important as it was. So, also, eradicators are just so good. Eradicators they kill are things. The, that's for sure. So, now the so, <laughs>
1: Going back to, to the Oath's Moment thing, like, the FAQ was released, did they, they, they it seems to be fixed in the FAQ, but I mean, was Ooh. that FAQ released, like, it was released today, but I don't know if it was a, a change that had already been done, or if it was done, it just simply states that when you shoot at that enemy unit that you picked, you get to reroll hits and wounds.
0: They, they might have, uh, I, you, did they change it literally on the final hour uh, because when I looked at it this weekend, I clearly read. It. I read it like five uh, well, times. Well, they
1: they was a new release. There were new releases uh, this today of FAQs. Yeah. They
0: just I dropped. read it in that too. Yeah. Okay. Well, then they did change it. Well, then good on them. You can still go in the. So let's go ahead and read this. So the, thing the battlefield of the bear is the following ability: uh, is within six of the bear each time a model in that unit makes an attack against that and that enemy unit. Yes, they did change it. Well, okay, GW. So... Kudos
3: to you. To your point, Pablo. They changed it very quickly once they were alerted to the
0: problem. Yeah, this isn't... This is version 1.2. Yeah. Um, you know what? You know what, <laughs> GW? I, I've, I've got the screenshotted version on my phone where it says an enemy unit. So I swear to you it said an enemy unit. But... But, but, but. You know what? I apologize, GW. Y'all... We're on top of it. Congratulate! You know what? Another round of applause to GW for fixing <laughs> the FAQ appropriately. Woo! Yay! <laughs> applause! I'm still curious to hear where your stand is on community and uh, raw versus rules as interpreted. Um, I think I think at this point, if GW does rule these things as fast as possible, like this quickly, um, in the future, if they set that precedent, I think raw is okay. Um, but I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. Thank you, Scary. I really appreciate that. Uh, as I checked as of this morning, it was still unchanged. But I might have, I might have like looked at the same, you know, downloaded copy I had on my phone. So, anyways, moving on. Uh, the The lists. Um, the White Scars list was cool. Um, I learned very quickly that Space Marines are so good. Uh, you can roll really poorly with Space Marines and still have. Uh, you know, good shot of of doing something, uh, winning with your army. Just the ability, just the extra wound that they got, the you know random toughness fives across the board on specific good units. Um, it just makes them, you know, really durable, uh, and they're just a solid army. So if if you're a beginner, a beginning player, or if you really want a safe competitive choice, Space Marines are looking like they're going to be that throughout the entire edition. Even if they don't necessarily, even if they get their power level toned down. Um, I think that they're they're definitely solidified as the you know safe jack of all trades reasonably top tier choice for new players who want to get into the game. The jack of all trades, master of all. <laughs> for right now, yes. We'll see. I, I'm I'm I think I'll have my final kind of a grade on Space Brains in the edition after the April FAQ and after uh, a few more codexes come out but yes right now they're they're so strong clearly the eradicators are just so good outriders are good blade guard veterans are good um uh, the Mario Kart bikes are really good they're they're a really strong faction right now you cannot deny that anyways so that's the white scars list i took the first game i played i played against imperial knights uh i took linebreaker titan hunter and oaths of moment uh it was against a player, an Imperial Knight player playing uh, in his first ever tournament, playing a uh, House Crast Knights List. It was three Crusaders and three Armagers, uh, two Warglaives and a Halverin. And it was, a, it, was a, it was actually a surprisingly really close game. Um, I told him what my Assaults Insurance did. Uh, turn one, he gave me two knights, let me charge them turn one anyways. Uh, my Assaults Insurance picked up essentially two knights, uh, but the uh, one knight they did actually kill. Uh, blew up 11 inches and did about 15 to 20 mortal wounds to my army. Um, they killed, you know, six or seven scout bikes, uh, Centurion and a half, um, most of a character. Uh, it was it was a brutal, it was a really brutal explode explosion but it kept them kind of in the game. And then from there, I just kind of played a really cagey game. Company veterans were, were definitely the MVP. Uh, there were points when he had one night left and it could it couldn't shoot my character because the company veterans were standing right next to the character. And they have a rule that if they're within three inches of a character, an infantry character, I believe, uh, they you your opponent can't shoot that character. So the company veterans just kind of you know flipped to the knight, the bird, and said, "You got to shoot us," and then laughed at him. So they were they were really good. They also scored me a bunch of points. So company veterans uh, were legit that game, um, and then I ended up winning that game, fifty five to thirty nine. Second game I played, I played uh, the Ultramarines list with the Oaths of Moment that I talked about. So full rerolls to hit and to wounds. Uh, it was it had uh, 20 blade Guard Veterans and Invictor uh, Victor Honor Guard, the, the guys who come with Calgar. Um, so a lot of Storm Shields, a lot of high AP, had Guillemin in it, Intercessors, three units of Eradicators. So essentially, an Ultramarines infantry gun line list. Luckily, my opponent split his army. Um, it was Dawn of War deployment, so he took two corners. So I pushed the one corner without flanking Centurions, the corner without Gilman, Um ended up winning that game. 60-40, uh, to 40. and then the final game I played against T.J. Lanigan's Chaos Demon list, not piloted by T.J. Lanigan, but uh, it was just a Magnus, Lord of Change, Armon, and each Demon Prince, uh, 20 Nurgling bases, 30 Pink Horrors, and some Cultists to round out the list. And that list is so, so nasty uh chaos demons chaos demon players you have some actually really good lists uh not just that list you have the the seekers the keeper of secrets lists um that we saw floating around last week that made the top four you have obviously more nurglings you can double down on nurglings you can dip into csm for more beatstick characters Uh, i think chaos demons in particular look actually really good this edition um uh, but I ended up winning that one very, very closely. It was a very very close game. My opponent messed up. Uh they took the psychic ritual secondary, which ultimately cost him the game as I won seventy to sixty three. Uh and if he had just taken any other objective, I think he probably would have easily had that game. So that's it. That was the that was the tournament. Um three really close games against three great opponents. Uh definitely have a lot to learn. And um that Those is are the all the
1: best kind of games. The close oh armies, yeah, you know, yeah, and uh, I would agree. I think demons are in a very good spot. Even if you go into like stat center and take a look at all the the stuff that, uh, like, the demon win rate's really good right now.
2: Yeah, they're they basically stumbled into being one of the best armies in the game.
0: So I guess on to unit roles now. One common trend I saw was everyone had either uh, raise the banners, or everyone was thinking of the raise the banners, or the Deploy scramblers or those kind of sp- specific action-based objectives, um, and they, of course they did absolutely well. The, most of the time, those objectives were the ones that were the highest scores. Uh, although almost no one I talked to scored like a fifteen on objectives. It was it was it's very very rare scoring fifteen on objectives unless you're absolutely stomping your opponent. Um, but for the most part, people were looking. People who were winning were scoring. You know. 10 to 10 to 13 10 to 12 points on objectives and then getting 15 to 10 points every every uh, primary objective turn. So that was that was kind of what people were winning with specifically uh, which makes sense right because if you get 10 points on each secondary and 10 points on each primary you, you're already, that's already an 80 point game uh, which is, which is a really high scoring game at 90 points after you get your 10 per, your 10 point um, uh, painted painting points. So, battle-ready army points.
1: Oh yeah, uh, you know, and that's something that even, I believe, when we discussed like the game at the beginning of ninth Edition, like when we were discussing secondaries, uh, a lot of the stuff, it was like, you know, you pick stuff that you can get 8 to 12 points on, like almost guaranteed, because not all secondaries are created equal. And especially now that we're starting to get you know codex-based secondaries and you know, and I can only imagine that they're going to expand the secondary choices as time goes. You know, it's it's good to it's good to have a good understanding of what your what army is capable of doing, um, regardless of what your opponent brought to the table. And I think good players will leverage the, and good lists leverage the 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 fact that you can build lists that don't rely on your opponent to sort of score those secondary points correct because uh, yeah, absolutely eventually
3: you're going to find that one player who doesn't give up any secondary points and what do you do at that point
0: yeah and so so here's another thing I, as i was building my necron list uh, i finally moved away from the canopic Doomstalkers. As so much as i love them uh, what i was finding with them specifically is if you take four vehicles in a list you're giving up a secondary especially if they're over 10 wound vehicles Uh, You're giving up a a lot of points in secondaries considering how easy vehicles are to kill this edition. Um, People are, in general, taking really grindy, harder-hitting, slower units. Ones that can take vehicle punches uh, and hurt vehicles in single single attacks. Same thing with really powerful characters, really powerful melee characters, are very, very common, uh, specifically right now. Um, And so I feel like spamming vehicles is... The only unit I think you should definitely think about doing before you include vehicles in your list, uh, and it's only going to get worse, I feel. Um, but what are your what are your guys' thoughts on picking units that give your opponents points? Because in the past, uh, like for example, last edition, scout bikers were really bad, and MSU in general was pretty bad because your opponent could get killed more and more often, and they would essentially bleed points. Uh, because of how easy they are to kill but in this edition my scout bikers actually did pretty well uh, my opponent always felt kind of awkward having to kill them because you know they were still t5 they, they they were relatively cheap they were really fast so i put them in really weird spots where my opponent had to kind of go out of their way to kill them and they weren't worth any points mo- more specifically uh, they were just kind of running around the board and causing havoc so when you're designing your list, how important do you think it is now to not give up maximum points on a secondary objective?
2: I think it's pretty big. Um, the the lists that do give those points up easily uh, have a a pretty significant downside, and they typically have not done very well. Uh, like we're not seeing very many knights or vehicle heavy. Lists going really high on things because I think those are really like the three you have to watch out for are vehicles, as Pablo mentioned, uh, Titanic units because you you give up uh, that super super easy, um, and Psychers, uh, which has kind of like kicked Zinch builds and Gray Knights pretty squarely between the legs uh, because you know you can give up fifteen or even thirty secondary points there.
0: One thing I do want to add to that is characters, characters, uh, heavy character lists like what you saw before with um, uh, your super friends, Death Star style lists. Those lists are also very risky too. Assassinate is particularly brutal, but also GW is trending towards um, giving more random secondaries extra points for killing characters too. Right, so the the quickest example I have of that is oaths of moment which is the space marine secondary objective the the all-star space space marine secondary objective that everyone's talking about right now and that's the one where you get two points at the end of the battle round if you are wholly within the center of the board uh six inches with solely within six inches of the center of the board you get one point for if you haven't failed a morale test you haven't fallen back so essentially a free a free point every turn Uh, and then you also get a point for killing a character a vehicle or a monster um and that's where that objective really goes overboard because you're essentially scoring four points every time you kill a character if you take that and assassinate so uh, char- character spam does feel very risky especially s- like something like what astro run with like like with a bunch of company commanders and primary psychers and astropaths
3: yeah t3 multi-wound characters really don't go very far in ninth edition no, no it...
1: definitely not. Now, something else, though, is in terms of my philosophy for secondary uh, picking, some factions right now, you know, like, for example, Dark Elder, th- you know, if you try and mitigate your opponent's ability to score secondaries against you, you end up hamstringing your ability to play the game because your, your faction itself just doesn't have enough hitting power a lot of the time. So if I were to make a list that had like no venoms no ra- like no 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 venoms for example so you couldn't score like big game hunter uh, the list itself just the way that it is like you know it just be very weird to play to the mission unless you played like a horde of witches or you know a gaunt carpet i mean a rack carpet um which is just a totally different playstyle so my philosophy is Make sure that you can score your secondaries, like build a list if you want to just make sure you can score secondaries like Scramblers or While We Stand We Fight or Engage On Fronts, for example, which are ones that have nothing to do with your opponent. And then as for your opponent scoring secondaries on you, that's less of an issue for me. I want my opponent to worry about being able to score, so they're going to score it, they're going to score it, but I need to make sure I can score my points and that I'm not hamstringing my ability to play the game just for that reason of scoring points
0: uh yeah a hundred percent now uh brandon and sean when you're designing your units um for maximize when you're designing the rules for units how much do you think you should devote your list to maximizing points
3: so maximizing points efficiency
0: yes so so look, i guess we're so... talking about rules here so the
3: that's actually the core of a list, on, in my opinion. Is you're talking about these slow, tough, grindy, and killy units. I think that finding a unit in your Codex that can perform that role efficiently is actually super important in Ninth Edition because tables are smaller. You start out the same distance from your enemy, but if you can get to the middle of the board with your six inches of move in turn one and contest the whole of the center of the board with a unit of say. Grav Centurions or Assault Centurions, something that's extremely difficult to remove per point, kills a lot of stuff per point, and doesn't move particularly quickly, it doesn't need to. If it's got the threat range to control the middle of the board, that's all you're looking for. So those kinds of units are a very attractive core to build your board presence around and force your opponent to have to come to you and take that unit out because it's not efficient to remove that unit with shooting. So they have to devote a more efficient unit, which is generally melee, to getting rid of it, and that's giving your opponent the initiative to change the game state, which is generally the play style that I prefer. So yeah, I think that if I'm building a list that suits my play style, a really grindy efficient unit is a great
0: start to an army list. How important is it to zone your opponent off the center of the board as well? And do you think grindy units are the best choices at that, or do you think there's other units that fulfill that role too? I feel like taking the center of the board is really powerful.
3: You can definitely do it in other ways. I feel like the grindy unit is the most reliable way if you're not sure about what the terrain will be. But if you're going to an event where there will reliably be good line of sight blocking terrain reasonably close to the center of the board, you can hide very fast, hard hitting melee units in those pieces of terrain. Uh, White Scars come to mind, Repentia come to mind, that can hop through a wall and absolutely obliterate any enemy unit that happens to be near them on the charge. So those kinds of units do have board presence as well, but they tend to rely on the terrain to pull it off and not have the intrinsic toughness to be able to sit in the middle of the board in the open and pull off the same board presence. So you can definitely have both, but there are going to be times on tables where there's no terrain near the part of the board that you want to contest, and you won't be able to put units there to push your opponent away. So still, I think having an efficient unit that can, at range, maybe it does start behind terrain, but from 36 inches away, it can still have board presence and push your opponent off of objectives. So um, for guard, that would be the Demolisher Tank Commander, for example, with 30-inch range. It can still move 5 inches forward and absolutely smash A tough unit off an objective like those centurions are not going to like getting hit with a demolisher cannon and it can threaten that but in that particular case the tank commander does not have the points efficiency on defense to survive the incoming return fire after doing that most of the time so i don't know having a unit that can have a long-range board presence for clearing enemy units off of objectives while being obscenely tough and not being particularly fast Great role, Melee units that are extremely fast, so I'm thinking 24-inch reliable charges, um, combined with extremely hard hitting, so they can remove, say, an Imperial Knight in one combat phase. I think that's another great way to do board presence, but it's a different kind of efficiency. It's more of a focus on speed and hitting, uh, hitting power, rather than hitting power and defense.
0: Now, Shon and Scar, it feels like the conversation is leaning towards infantry models are king, which I think is correct. However, what are what are some non infantry models that you two are using that are almost must takes? I'm thinking things like are are transports something that fulfill a role that most lists can take advantage of, or are monsters any good? Or is there anything other than infantry? Or is this edition really feel like the infantry is king edition?
1: I I think instead of like infantry versus transport I think what we have to take in mind is right now a lot of the top lists have filled specific arc- archetypes like archetypes for like roles that you want units to play in on the table you know at the beginning of the edition I was a big proponent of like talking about like a pin, unit or a pressure unit a control style element to a list and like a support style element to a list, so you kind of break that down to lots of different things but you're seeing a lot of the top lists have that sort of dichotomy where if you can pin your opponent in place or stops them from moving it prevents them from scoring so you want something that can put pressure on your opponent then you need something that can sort of control the midboard and take objectives whether it's objective secured units or tough units that are hard to remove or in my case venom's which are like little units all over the place that you can kind of hop out onto objectives and sort of like you know per- like take them away from your opponent or and stop them from scoring and then you have a support element where or which could be something like long range fire support right some people take the plasma scepter some people take you know hellblasters even this weekend we saw uh, in a lot of situations some people take you know the manticores with full payload uh, exorcists right so you have like a layered approach to it and the units that you take for this vary wildly from your playstyle to you know your local meta to uh, what you feel or to the faction that you're playing and i think that's more important than specifically saying you know, infantry or king, or you know, this is king or that's king.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's pretty fair. Um, I I will I do want to expand a little bit on on Scurries there, like mentioning like almost no matter what list you are, bar a, a small handful of exceptions, you're gonna need at least one solid to good shooting unit, um, something that can kind of just like be pointed at a target and kill it. Um, and that might be an infantry unit because there are plenty of good versions of those. But it doesn't necessarily have to be, it can kind of be anything that is able to just like hop out and kill one target that you need. Uh, because I think that's something we're seeing is a very important role in ninth edition is you you need basically like a long range chess piece that you can just sort of be like, all right. I'm just going to blast this one thing in your list as a huge problem for me. And then, yeah, you're going to kill my unit, but it's already done its job, so I don't care.
3: Yeah, then then you're just investing entirely in make sure that unit strikes first, which coming in from reserve and having decent range is a good start in the case of Plasma and Scepters, mm-hmm. um, combined with can it kill way more than what it costs after it comes in? And maybe I spend some CP, maybe I don't, but put as many buffs into the unit as I can, how many units is it going to kill? And the answer in Plasma Inceptors is, I can kill twice its point cost in one shooting phase. And it's like, well, great, that's enough damage, considering how much Plasma Inceptors cost, that uh, I can just win the game after that. So that's what you're looking for. If it's something like Plasma Veterans outflanking, or Plasma Special Weapon Squads outflanking for guard, they're never going to make their points back even with all the buffs that guard can give them on the turn they arrive but they're cheap so they perform a different role they're not they're not the same role they're not there to obliterate more points than they're worth they're there to pick up engage on all fronts or to zone out enemy reserves Um, so it's a different role
1: you also you also have to take into account a your like your matchups and the local meta and the way that the sort of like meta is shaping, but also take into account like trends. So, for example, you know the the, the sort of lack of anti out of line of sight shooting, unless it's like very specific factions. For example, um, you know bringing in stuff that then does shoot out of line of sight. You know, and all of these factors just kind of really create that soup. What you're going to use your units for as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, as I was kidding out some of like my cheaper units, it it does it does feel like you want a unit to perform different roles. Uh for instance, with my company veterans, I was considering giving them plasma guns or multi or melt guns or thunder hammers just just because they're such a a cool little Swiss army unit, but I ended up settling with just keeping them bare bones at 40 points. Do you think how much I guess I guess the question I'm trying to ask is where is the where's the ceiling for hybrid units to perform multiple roles so if you look at like the command veteran squads from for guard with their plasma guns they're obviously they're cheap however is is just a deep striking veteran squad with bare bones nothing that's even cheaper is two of those or three of those in replace of two plasma gun veteran squad? is that better um because you're essentially you're giving a unit two roles that can kind of contradict contradict each other in that they might not want to shoot down uh come down and shoot the turn that they arrive they might want to perform an action uh and i guess where's the where's the um the diminishing returns on a unit um when it can just you can just replace what one of its roles is with an even cheaper unit
2: uh i think it depends on which roles you're mixing In particular, the sort of like deep striking harassment that you're going to use to get like engage on all fronts or to grab an objective or something like that mixes very well with the sort of reserve threat rule uh, that can, you know, just sort of come in and blast something. Because that that ability to just drop in and use their guns gives them a decent amount of flexibility in terms of where you place them. So they can show up in the spot you need them to, uh, filling that job, and then also get rid of an enemy unit, filling a second one at the same time. Uh, and I think those two in particular sync very well together.
1: I think you also have to make a value proposition for the units that you put in your list based on your matchup. And this comes with practice. But, you know, a unit that has plasma guns in it and that you want to you know use to drop down and shoot something in one matchup in another matchup might be a lot less useful. And therefore, its use becomes to be the unit that does the action for you when it deep strikes. You know, uh, sometimes my ravagers are the thing that I use as a screen you know, they're one of the most expensive units in my list, but in some matchups, my Ravager is the most useless part of my army. So I use it as the screen. Right? So it's about learning, you know, when to use specific units and when to use them for something completely different, and being okay with using them differently that's like a not their quote unquote, you know, job description. And I think a good general kind of squeezes the Efficiency out of their units in that way, as much as making the uh, like the units themselves very efficient at the job they're supposed to do.
3: That makes sense, Scary. I mean, I'd summarize that as um, very guard strategy in terms of identify the most efficient units for that matchup, and don't be afraid to use the less efficient units to protect the more efficient ones. Number one, number two, when you're building a list it does help if you have a secondary role in mind for a unit. So a skimmer that can move over enemy units and form a new screen against enemy reserves can be super useful in some matchups versus a more static fire support platform that you could have picked. When you're building the list, it's a subtle thing, but if you can have secondary roles in mind, like for guard, a secondary role in 8th for Bulgrins was to deal with Imperial Knights, because you would take the uh, reroll to wound Warlord trait against one target, and the melee knight would come towards you, and your Bulgrins, which normally wound on 5s, would wound on rerollable 5s, which is almost twice as much damage. So yeah, they're not the most effective means of taking down an Imperial Knight, but that secondary role against an all-knights player was nice to have. So yeah, while you're building the list, if you can think of secondary roles for units so they're not just one thing, great.
0: This episode is brought to you
3: by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash instantinkspotify.
0: So speaking of sub-rolls in units, I want to talk about units that, that are specifically designed to be a jack-of-all-trades, you know, finger in the pole, the sinking boat kind of roles. Um, And I want to talk about mobile characters. And so one trend I'm seeing a lot of people move towards is taking one or two, usually infantry, but not always, really mobile, hard-hitting, buffing characters. In the last edition, this was pretty common too. It was I don't think it was as common. In this edition, you have the Harlequin Troop Master or the Death Jester, but the Troop Master is probably the best choice here. You have the Space Marine Smash Captain on Bike, or or your generic Space Marine Fast Infantry Dude. Uh you have like your Magnus Mortarian, you also have Demon Princes, which are really good right now. Uh that perform a variety of different things. You have the Eldar uh uh what do you call the L- Autark on Bike with the Crazy Sword? Um you can take him. Um I don't know if Dark Eldar necessarily have a unit like
2: that.
1: Uh just a Ginblade Archon or Drazar.
2: Yeah, I was going to say Drazar, who really fills that role, as just like, you point him at something and he just torpedoes into it and kills it.
0: Yeah, th- those are those are really important right now, because characters, uh, they're, they're not as durable as they were last edition, however, uh, they still are, they have options for being the most durable, uh, more durable than regular infantry, uh, and more importantly, uh, they're, they're still easier to hide in ruins, especially when they're infantry models, um, and they're efficient. They they are they take up a battlefield rule slot that you need for a patrol or battalion detachment. So they take up the role there. Uh they also can provide buffs. They take warlord traits and relics, uh which are becoming more and more uh niche uh, and specific, which I love. Uh and it looks like GW is emphasizing the importance of characters and having them in your army as more than just beat sticks. Right, like if you look at like the Necron Codex, their entire dynamics or uh, their command protocols revolve around having characters on the board. Having your warlord on the board gives you command points. You lose command points if you lose your warlord. You lose that once to be a turn, which I learned can be really devastating. So characters are getting they're getting more and more important, fleshed out rules in Ninth Edition from GW, uh, and I like that. So. How important is it to have, for the three of you, how important is it to have a character that can fulfill as many roles as possible efficiently? Um, or do you still think that maybe having a beat stick character whose only job is to missile in there and kill something or having buff, traditional buff characters that stay in the back and only provide buffs? Um, do, you, do you think those kind of traditional roles are still are more important? Or do you think having a one character who can do everything, um, and you pile everything onto them do you think that's more important, or basically, what are your thoughts on characters and their roles?
2: I think I would typically like a character who does one thing, you know, quite well, uh, be it beatstick or buffing or whatever else, and has kind of like a minor secondary, like, oh, I can also do this, even if I'm not as good at it. Um, you'll see that as, like, you know, the, the Smash Captain-ish kind of thing, where it's like, well, mainly he just, like, flies in and kills something. Uh, he also buffs your core units a little bit, and that's nice to have, and it, it gives him to something to do while he's waiting to jump on a unit and kill it.
3: I feel the same way. I feel like uh, buff characters are still, in my book, the strongest characters, because they tend to survive the game and not give up assassin points. But conversely, a hyper-efficient character like the Salamander's T7 bike character who's almost unkillable um, as a beatstick character is great. Because again, you don't give up assassin points very easily. But again, in general, 80% of the time it's going to be way easier to keep the character alive if they're buffing. So I feel like that should be the primary role 80% of the time. And yeah, having an ability to walk up and kill two space marines on the charge is pretty nice to have too um if you can pull that off cheaply enough
1: uh as long as you are making sure that the characters that you have play a role in your list you know and that you're using those points efficiently and effectively then that's fine the biggest thing is you just don't want that dead weight of a character that you're just putting in there because i know it's fun or fluff. like if you're playing competitively right you know you like if they play a role in your list, and in a pinch it can like substitute out for like an extra character to go in and throw a punch or whatever. But normally it just sits back and gives this relic buff to someone or whatever. Then you know as long as it's doing its job. Uh, but as long as you're willing to sort of use them to the maximum, depending on what you need at the time, and just don't spend too many points on them, because at the end of the day, you know it's really like your units and stuff that take objectives and kill units self objectives and things like that and it's all about getting those points to win the game
0: yeah yeah sorry about that i had a hard time unmuting my mic um yeah i i agree 100 having characters designed to meet those specific benchmarks of points um is probably the best way to go and i think also what i'm sensing here is that it does depend on your faction and your list as well Uh, Astromel term, for instance don't have a lot of good beatstick characters um, and I don't like the idea anymore of taking Company Commanders with Power Fists or multiple Company Commanders with Power Fists. Um, That doesn't feel very good. Now, um, one final role I want to talk about and uh, and that's the the role that Lords of War and big big boys um, start to carry now. Now, we've got Necron Obelisks, Necron Tesseract Vaults, got buffed uh, really well. Um, we had a lot of Forge World units get decreased in points. Uh, the Hero Duel and the Hierophant even uh, went down to, to heavy support instead of Lords of War slots. Are, is there any room in Ninth edition lists for big boys? You know, 500, 450, 500 point plus you know, units that just you have to build your army around. Things like the Silent King. Uh, either of the primarchs obviously keepers of secrets are pretty good right now um but in general is that something that's that's viable that you see most lists trying to look for that role in the future or is that something that's a little more niche
2: i don't uh, think it's a r-
0: oh,
3: one thing oh, to keep really in mind awesome. <laughs> the silent king he has the uh, maximum three wounds per phase rule or is that just the Catan?
2: that's just katan okay because uh and gasgle i think has yeah because i feel like if
3: you're going to bring a big model having that you can only take three wounds per phase is actually a great rule to have to keep someone like gaz or the katan alive and especially when you have multiple katans in your list um it's very difficult for a lot of armies but in particular armies like tau which only have one phase that they participate in reasonably to get rid of them. So yeah, if you're going to put enough points into a model and it has a reasonable expectation because of some rule that it's going to survive the game, or it's particularly easy to hide and it's mobile and it's a melee threat, like the Greater Demons of Slanesh, or the Big Bird, which has the three-up and vulnerable save, so it's got a reasonable expectation of not dying during the course of a game, I think those are great. But if you're going to bring a Stormlord or a Baneblade and it doesn't have an invulnerable save, it's basically impossible to hide because it's impossible to obscure, um, and it's 26 or 28 wounds waiting to give your opponent lots of victory points for being a titanic unit, then um, just leave the model at home.
2: Yeah, I think broadly speaking, Lords of War are not worth it. Uh, they're not necessarily like terrible, but um, you have to do a lot of work to build around them, and they can be countered relatively easily by, you know, a list that's running heavy on Eradicators or something like that. And at the end of the day, like, yeah, you can play with them, and they're, they're fun and cool, and you can win games, uh, but the, I don't think the top-tier lists are really featuring Lords of War for the most part. But that, you know, that's very different from a Catan or something like that that has other forms of protection.
1: And, well, Satan are not, like, other than, a Tesseract vaults a Lord of War, but I think one of the uh, regular Satans are not, and I think that's that's a key distinction, is, right now you are seeing Lords of War, yes, but ones that you can put into a Supreme Command detachment as a you Mm. know, Supreme Commander that then refunds your battalion, you know, and when we're talking about big Creatures and big monsters using command points is like a prime resource, right? We're building your army list, and the matter of the fact is, like a supreme, a uh, a super heavy auxiliary detachment costs command points to put into your list. And a lot of the times, you're kind of like already squeezing command points in with extras, relics, or extra roller traits, and you know those come at a premium. Uh, A supreme commander, you know, sort of like comes in is freer. You know, Yes, you have to make them your warlord or whatever. Um, however, things like the Silent King, uh, Gulliman, right? Those are ones that are, you're seeing popularly right now, even in the competitive scene. Uh, but that's not to say you're not going to see big models. You see big models and units that cost a lot of points fit into armies as well because of the fact that they sort of mesh with the army well and they're not like, you know, four or 500 points, although some are, but some are, uh, you know, 200 to 300 points. You know, you're looking at uh, like the monster spam demon list where each keeper Secrets is like 230 points or whatever. Or you're looking at the, the new, the Hyra the Duel and Barbed Hyra for Tyranids that are now heavy support choices than they used to be Lords of War. And they're only like 230 points now, which is like a large monster. Um, and so I think that as long as it has synergy within your list, um a big model is not a bad idea. It's just right now the synergy of being able to take big models is sort of broken within sort of like the list building dynamics within the constraints of a two thousand point army list and then compound that with the fact that every space Marine army has a way to murder your big model in two seconds like. There's no point in wasting all that energy and time to try and fit it in when, you know, five eradicators are just going to blow it up in a single turn.
3: So we're in agreement. If your big model can actually survive a space marine shooting phase somehow, then great. Consider it. But if you're going to put it on the board and six eradicators will blow it up handily, then
0: maybe not. So I agree with you all, first of all. Before I I say this, I want that to be clear. Uh, However, I have a theory That is, this edition feels less lethal than previous editions. It feels grindier. It feels like more people are devoting more points to specific rules that aren't designed to just killing your opponent. Also, killing your opponent's models has diminishing returns with a lot of objectives. You really don't need to kill as many of your opponent's models as you did previously. Matter of fact, there are some lists that even go so far as to try and win the game with uh, killing as little of your opponent's models as possible. I don't recommend that strategy. However, those lists have been known to put up 80 to 90 points in a game, uh, and then lose by 81 to 91. So, it, the the addition does feel less lethal. So, having used Eradicators and seen Eradicators on the board now at multiple games, Eradicators are so good point for point, but they aren't the end all be all boogeyman that I imagined them. Uh, from watching from afar at tournaments, uh, they are fallible. Space Marines are losing more and more ways to give buffs to eradicators. Um, the need to to outflank them and uh, put them in angles where they can get at things makes them a little more vulnerable, makes them a little more less efficient um, because they're not standing in gun lines of of rerolls to hit and to wound auras uh, as you know was in previous editions. And then they do have a twenty four inch range so basically what I'm trying to say is is eradicators are the big boogeyman, but they can be played around and i I just I get the feeling that someone hasn't figured it out yet, but there's this you know crazy lord of war choice somewhere that can kill the things that kill it these eradicators don't have an invuln save uh and then just absolutely bully an entire board uh because of how how little units there are. That can kill big things because people are taking less and less of them. So, I, I, I obviously I don't think I think this is something. This is just theory. It's not something I think is going to happen. But I wouldn't be surprised if down the road we had something, some big unit that could kill eradicators efficiently and that could kill things that your opponent has, and then just bully all the little, the little like objective grabbers, right? And you're just like, Magnus kind of did this to me in my final game with RTT. Uh, I realized, oh shit, I have nothing to deal with Magnus um on turn three. Luckily my opponent left a unit of Eradicators alive and they were able to bring Magnus down to two wounds. However it took like three turns. Um, you know, Magnus does have a you know good influence save and all that. He was healing himself. Um, the point but the point still stands is as he was playing that Magnus, um wiping out just little unit after little unit after little unit, I thought like, oh God, if I if I if he'd focused down my Eradicators uh, and kited my assault Centurions, I would be absolutely getting destroyed this game because I don't have a way to deal with Magnus because I was so worried about taking things that kill small units that that score me objective points that do a variety of other roles um, instead of focusing on a really big unit like Magnus. Magnus is an obvious exception because he he's broken. He's a really, really good unit. He's got a 3-up invuln potentially and you know all this good stuff. But
2: I'm curious. That's all. Just, just the theory. How do you say, feel... no, uh, Go no. ahead, Sean. I was going to say, no, no, in, go in, in, sort of in response to that, I think you're not entirely wrong, but there are a couple points that I want to like hit in there. Uh, in terms of, like, people aren't bringing as much killing stuff... Ninth edition is probably about as lethal as 8th edition, but it's not as necessary to kill things. Which is where I think the discrepancy kind of comes in. is like, people don't need to build their list to kill as hard as possible, but they still can if they want to. As far as, like, a unit like that being able to, like, kill anything that kills it... I think the big problem with that is uh, something that Brandon has mentioned a couple of times which is that uh, you know a lot of these units can just come out of reserve and you can't kill something that's not on the board. Uh, so like that is the big problem is you know how do you protect your your big hitter from the plasma scepters or eradicators coming out of reserve. They're are potentially ways to do that, but they're not that easy, and it's just it's very difficult to defend against reserves, which puts those big units at an inherent disadvantage when it comes to like trying to trade with stuff
0: uh yeah, I agree with you hundred percent though it in general it's definitely a pill battle um that was just something I wanted to raise uh. Brandon and Scarry.
1: Nope, no comment. I think uh, no. I think it was well said.
0: Yeah. I've, All right. I've said my piece. Okay, perfect. Uh, is there any other roles that we didn't mention that you want to kind of highlight? Maybe, maybe not necessarily a general role, but a role that a unit fulfills in your army. That maybe it's like a pet unit or a unit that you don't necessarily see on tabletop a whole lot. However, it just does this thing for you really well. Uh, and you'd like to mention it have we covered action monkeys we we kind of did with the i think we alluded to it a bunch of times but let's talk about a- action monkeys then take it away literally
3: Brandon. find the cheapest unit doesn't have to be efficient to anything just the cheapest <laughs> unit you can possibly find cheapest infantry unit. yes and uh it can raise banners for you and if it can do that and it's the cheapest unit you can take in a slot
1: can do scramblers, raise banners. Uh, if it can fly, even better. If it has a decent movement speed, even better. If it keeps strike, even better.
3: Yeah, I think uh, all those metal servitors are coming out of the the closets and heading the tables again. the slith again.
1: and the Urgal are for. Yeah.
2: and the
3: crusaders and the uh, assassins. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. The in in ninth edition, one of the perfect units you can put in a list. Is a two model thirty point unit with a seven inch movement. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah, that that is your dream unit right there, uh, because it does exactly what you need and no more. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent.
0: One one thing I've been seeing is, um, generally, units those units if they're if you're paying you know anywhere between seven to ten points for a wound, uh, and then a low amount of points, generally that's efficient. Now. Uh, the reason why I wanted to talk about Action Monkeys and the the way I built my list was I knew Action Monkeys were a thing. Um, and it's part of the reason why I wanted to bring my Scout Bikes in. Because Scout Bikes are fast. And they can go and they can beat up on Action Monkeys so hard. Like there was one game where uh, my Scout Bike literally ran around uh, the side of a ruin and was like, oh, hello, 10-man cultist unit. You guys are dead now. It's just, And then the Scout Bikes charged something else. Uh, where where do you think... Do you think people are going to start creating a sub-meta of, you know, three to four hundred points devoted to killing these action monkeys? Or or they are going to take action monkeys that can kill other action monkeys? Like um action apes. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, I don't know. I don't think so, Pablo. I, was, uh, I
3: think that, yeah, you can have, like, a five-man fair. squad come in that will easily delete shaft units. I mean, that's a thing that already exists. But I don't think they're going to have their own meta. It's mostly just and you sprinkle a little bit of action monkeys in your list, and now you can raise banners, turn one, and deploy scramblers because you have enough units that you don't care if they do anything.
1: Yeah, so, you know, and and if your opponent goes and devotes way too much effort and time, like an Urgle is 16 points, right? Like, you know, you're not exactly like, you're shooting, what, 60 points at my 60 point model? It's not like I don't have other units in my army that can do actions for me. It's the fact that you have to deal with this 16-point model, if not, or you don't, because it's not efficient for you to deal with this 16-point model. And uh, and just so everybody understands, the movement is important because you could be on your deployment line and your movement with your base size lets you make one move without advancing and be 6 inches away from your deployment zone to deploy scramblers in no man's land and that's uh that's the important part so so everybody understands why the movement is important
2: that's also relevant for a lot of the objective placements in certain missions where you know moving 7 inches will get you within range of an objective
0: yeah that's the actual are interesting I think most factions have access to them. I I can't think of any custodians probably don't. Uh
1: well <laughs> they can take Sisters degrees. of Silence. You know, like you oh, know, they that's that's a cheaper useless... you know, in relative terms, a uh, sixty point sisters of silence unit is an that's action mankey. Action is expensive it's for most armies, but for custodies, that's one model, normally.
0: <laughs> that's pretty funny. <laughs> I think that's kind of what this, the the Custodians use Sisters of Silence for in the lore anyways, right? Like We don't need you all to kill stuff, we just need
2: you to stand here and stop psychers from killing us. It's it's nice of you to imply that Sisters of Silence have any presence in the lore at all. That's, that's very generous of you.
1: <laughs> they were <with> that fighting <laughs> Magnus on the moon, just saying.
2: Yeah, they got like a line and a half in that one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and a whole paragraph in pd pubs like list submission fluff
2: there's so Uh
3: many imperial factions at this point i'm not sad if any of them get left out
2: (laughs) yeah yeah we could maybe stand to trim down the factions a little bit so
1: all this banter aside there is one type of unit that i that has been a classic from the time immemorial and that is the distraction card effects and that is still a thing um And so to anybody who doesn't know what it is, it's essentially a unit that literally serves almost no other purpose than to run at your opponent yelling at full blast, hoping to die, and distract from everything else in your army.
2: Yeah, usually it's a melee unit, it's just like something you can ram into your opponent's face and just be like, here, deal with this, and meanwhile I'm going to play the game.
1: That is definitely a very, a very specific type. You know, you'll hear it all the time. Distraction Carnifex, Extraction effects, And it's a very real part of building a list if you just want to have either a Carnifex that is Distraction Carnifex or, I don't know, a Dreadnought or a Death Dread nope. or something that's just stompy and just looks menacing. But if it does get to you, it will probably kill some things. So you sort of have to deal with it, but you don't really want to. Uh, that's like the best combination.
0: I agree. I think they also do a really good job of zoning your opponent uh, away from areas of the board you don't want them, uh, like the middle of the board, for instance.
3: When I think of Distraction Carnifexes, I do think of zoning, but I think of them being in lists where you're doing uh, an all-or-nothing approach, and in this case your entire list is nothing. So I'm thinking of the Bloody Rose Mortifier spam list where you have Maximum or Pencha, some Zephyrim, the Triumph of St. Catherine, and then Mortifiers. And the Mortifiers are the Distraction Carnifexes because their damage output is so high that if they charge anything, it doesn't matter what it is, they're going to delete it. And they're reasonably fast, not too fast, but they're not that tough, and they're easier to see than the rest of the stuff in the list. So generally in that list, the Mortifiers end up being the Distraction Carnifex that has to be dealt with first, which allows the other units in the list that have no business being able to cross the board safely, like I'm looking at you, Triumph of St. Catherine, and uh, they're able to cross the board safely because the Distraction Carnifex gets in the way and has to be targeted first or they lose. So it doesn't even need to be necessarily a super points-efficient unit at receiving damage. That certainly helps. But it's the unit that allows the rest of your army to function by virtue of being the most important unit to get rid of first.
0: Yeah, um, <clears throat> thank you for bringing that up, Skari. Uh, we completely forgot about the distraction card effects. Uh, Sean, do you have anything else to add?
2: Um, one unit that I've had a, a decent amount of success with, uh, that is, you know, not every Codex has one, but basically like a little torpedo, uh, kind of like we talked about with characters earlier, where you can just sort of, like, take that character and throw it across the board and slam it into an objective and and wipe out everything on an objective. Um, a fair number of codexes have a, a non-character version of that. Something like your Shining Spears or, uh, even, like, the Harlequin Troop actually serves that role in the, the Harlequin Army itself. Um... But it's something that punches hard enough in melee to wipe out an obsec squad pretty consistently and is fast enough to uh, go from a position where it basically can't be attacked all the way across the board to jump on an objective. Uh, You're usually going to want at least 12 inches of movement and ideally like 16 or 20 coming out of it. and the, the unit's whole job is just to ruin your opponent's objective plans. Like, okay, um, y- if you only leave one unit of intercessors on that objective, I am going to take it from you. Um, and if you, you leave two or three units of, of intercessors on that objective, you're not covering the other objectives. Uh, it puts your opponent in a, a very awkward sort of catch-22 situation like that. Uh, and there are some armies that can can benefit a lot just from using that as an entire strategy.
0: As an entire
2: strategy, essentially, uh, that's that's where I've I've seen a lot of the craft worlds lists living at this point, um, because they they can't realistically hold objectives against an enemy attack, uh, so they are playing entirely on hoping to steal objectives.
0: All right. Um, <clears throat> Okay. Do we any more rules?
1: No, nope, just a moment. What Sean said, you know, the the missile yeah units, they're good. Uh, but it's it can come in different forms, like four mega knobs in a truck. That's a mega arm knobs missile or a man's missile, right? So it's literally like two of them in trucks. They run at you, and they're just gonna they're just torpedo their way straight forward. So yes, it's it comes in different forms different yeah. sort of like ways in different armies but that is definitely sort of like a list archetype as well
3: yeah the one i think of is five Zephyrum. so it doesn't need to be 400 points sometimes it can be 100 points
1: Yep, i use uh, incubi for that right so just incubi and a venom
0: all right okay everyone that is it let us know if we missed any rules i'm sure we did there's probably a ton of rules uh let us know if we missed any rules um or if you know you liked hearing about distracting Carnifexes missile units, action monkeys, jack-of-all-trades HQs, and so much more, everything we talked about, you can always head on over to patreon.com slash chapter tactics, uh, join the Facebook community, our Discord group, and ask us more questions, um, and we'll be happy to answer them for you. Also, if you are interested in hearing more from Skari, and you want to hear more of his lovely voice, Skari, where can they find you?
1: So you can head on over to YouTube at Skardcast, that's S-K-A-R. Uh, ed ast oh my goodness i don't even know my own name just google it okay <laughs> um and uh and check it out there and uh, yeah from there you can go to all the social media stuff two years going strong so here's to another 10 years of much content for the community
2: all right and sean where can they find you uh we are on our podcast in the finest hour Uh, If you're looking for sort of a little bit more short-form kind of experience compared to Chapter Tactics, then you might want to check us out. Uh, You can find us on Facebook or on Patreon, as well as uh, Podbean or or just about any of the the podcast hosting services.
0: And then finally, Brandon, what's going on in the Astronautown Facebook group?
3: Uh, Well, we actually had a gentleman a few weeks back uh, win a local event with a list that was pretty interesting. So the group's still going well. We're definitely figuring out guard as best we can. And if you want to join, just uh, hit me up on Facebook, and I'll add you.
0: All right, there you go. Now, if you're if you don't know yet, uh, for the patrons, we do give away every month. We give away something. This uh, the now the trend is going to be just a one hundred dollar frontline gaming giveaway. You can spend on GW stuff, ITC terrain mats, so much more. Every month, one patron is going to get that. Uh, unless I find something cooler to give away, and then I'm going to be giving them out away. However, GW's allocations have been brutal uh, and haven't been able to get a hold of anything interesting. No Forge World Indexes uh, or Compendiums, excuse me. No cool limited box sets. Um, so we'll see. I will definitely be giving away another Indominus box uh, when those finally do get come back. Uh, um, but for now, $100 gift card, $100 um $100 shopping spree at FrontlineGaming.org, uh, so you can check that out. Uh, you can also see cool stuff on the Patreon and the Facebook group, and you can ask us questions that we answer live at the end of every episode, which is what we're going to do right now, starting with, oop, Nope, that's the, that's the wrong one. Okay, um, <clears throat> actually, that's also the wrong, where is it? Okay, uh, sorry about that. Uh, patron Kelsey is leading away with, uh, "What's a question that you wish people would ask you but haven't yet?" That one, that one, that one. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> you know, sometimes I wish patrons would just ask me how my day is going. You know, like it's, it's usually going well, but man. And anyway, <laughs> joking aside, um, <clears throat> I do, I do like it when patrons ask questions about other games. Um, I have a variety of other passions and interests. Uh, beyond 40k, and I'm a very passionate guy, so uh, I like talking about, you know, um the rhinos. I love rhinos. And general, I actually know a lot of knowledge about rhinos and other animals, birds of prey. um I trained to be a falconer for a year, so I have a lot of knowledge on birds of prey and just things like that. So, you know what? If you really want to get me talking, ask me about animals.
2: Wait, do people on the internet like cute animals? Not just cute animals, but yes, people on the internet love animals.
0: All right. Uh, Patron Tim wants to know what units and ninth so far do you hope will take a leading role in your favorite army? Follow up question: Does Gravis Armor Fake Marines look fat? Uh, um, so w- the three of you, what units and ninth do you think do you do you want to see become zeros or heroes? Or what are some pet units that you really want to make work?
1: Uh, Helions and that is. A-
3: <laughs> Helions. Retributors. I want as many retributors as I can fit in my list.
0: Those are the heavy weapon ones, right? Yes.
3: I like nuns and guns with huge... Nuns with guns, the bigger the better.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a big fan of piranhas, always. That's, you can't... If, give, give me give me a, a T5 skimmer that zips around shooting very bad guns at things, and I'm happy. <laughs> All right.
0: Sweet. Right on. Um, and then, uh, I, yes, grav Armor does make Marines look fat.
2: It just it just does. No There's, body shame know. Marines. Shame them for their, their <laughs> terrible lore and their overpowered Kodaks. Okay, I'll do that too. Okay. The, um
0: anyways, uh Patron Hugh wants to know, uh, where do you see Joby going with Forge World units long term? Do you think they'd ever want to put it all into legends at some stage? Um Yeah, long term I think I think Forgeworld's gonna move away entirely from forty K. That's what it looks like.
3: Yeah, it looks like Forgeworld is becoming where thirty K lives
2: yeah i i don't think they're going to remove them from the game i think they're going to stay as a legal and permissible part of the game but i think that gw is trying to remove them from tournament relevance
0: uh that's a good point all right dan moose oh this is a good question for you and I, Skari. um but of course sean and brandon can also answer too but uh corn or flour tortillas mm,
1: corn what kind of Mexican do you think I am? Okay? Come
2: on. Corn is good. The, 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 a, a, a cold Mexican?
1: Okay, the I'm fact that I have a British Canada accent, right I live in Canada, does not mean <laughs> that my taste in tortillas changes at all. A good taco al pastor, with a couple of tortillas de maíz, like, mm, like, don't even get me started. And now I'm hungry. Thank you. Oh.
0: <laughs> So so I agree with you, Scari. I think the corn a good corn tortilla is something I will, I will always want when I'm eating a bowl of a noodle. You know, some posole, blue mm, uh, tortillas tacos, too, not just like you know. any
1: tortillas. I mean. uh, like oh yeah, yeah, no, ones. no, not
0: not the store bought stuff. Yeah. Ugh. But I want I want good. I would, but however, for a comfort food, uh, homemade flour tortilla made in Old Town in San Diego. Um, where you know it's just really fresh and, and flaky and you know, amazing. Um, that's probably my absolute favorite tortilla, but only from a very specific part of San Diego, other than that corn, all the way. Yeah, Otherwise, it's I'm gonna monster. be
3: contentious. I'm gonna say the one time that flour makes sense is in a burrito.
2: Yeah, yeah, I can I can get down with that.
1: Sure. You know, the, the, the
0: flour tortilla is just the it's 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 just the instrument <laughs> that that makes the butter. If I want
1: my beans <laughs> and rice in in are uh, surrounded by something, I'll just surround my mouth around it because it's delicious, I'm gonna eat it. Okay. So whether it's in a tortilla or with a knife or fork, but yes, it would be annoying to eat with a corn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough.
0: Fair enough. Very specifically if you want burritos. <laughs> Alright. Patron Robert wants to know what is your view on Lord of War sized characters? Do they even have a relevant role in the game other than being a centerpiece? Um I like them. I think they're great for the game personally.
2: I I think they can be interesting and if GW balances them well, they can be good. Uh the Silent King and and Magnus are both certainly strong pieces. Uh, and they may, we may see some of the others when they get codexes get good as well. Yeah, as long as they're tough enough, as long as they're tough enough and
3: have really great aura abilities, I'm on board. I'm looking at you, Triumph of St. Catherine.
0: (laughs) Man, you're just on that Triumph of St. Catherine train. (laughs) Uh... Patron Brett wants to know, why do you think we haven't seen infantry-heavy lists yet? Uh, if movement trades and practice could be well, used... I could, I, I'm um, just gonna
1: interrupt you right there. What? You do know that some of the like top lists are infantry-heavy, right? Like...
0: Uh, I think he's talking about horde lists, ah, like with 100-plus guardsmen which, models. Which also, we've
2: seen, though. Yeah, like I'm sorry, 90 conscripts is a good and list. horde and Gaunt Carpet are both a thing.
1: And orcs and, like, demon yeah. horde and um, guardsmen spam? Like, I've seen the 200-and-some guardsmen or whatever it is.
0: So I I, I did peruse through the top four uh, 40kstats.com com. Um, recently, and there aren't as many Horde lists in the top four as Elite lists. I think, think, Brett, I think what you're seeing is actually less a phenomenon of if our Horde lists are good and more of just Space Marines aren't a Horde list. I guarantee you if Space Marines had a seven or eight point troop choice, eight point per model troop choice, Space Marines would very quickly become a Horde list. You would just run like 50 to 60 of those, eradicators blade guard veterans and probably another 50 to 60 of those so uh, you know i think it's more space marines you know the top armies right now are not horde list armies um but i definitely see them like and they they feel good although i haven't put that theory to practice uh patron derek wants to know thoughts on something like a thunderhawk and biotitan now being pointed to play so big boys thousand plus point models
2: uh, Thunderhawk definitely not. Biotitan is going to be a gimmick you'll see occasionally, but just not that many people own them, so they they die to Eradicators just like most things. If
3: if the model is almost two thousand points, it should be pointed in a way that it only makes sense at a ten thousand point game. That is to say, not very efficiently.
1: Yeah, and it's it might be tempting, you know, a lot of these big units that were that were like the the Hive of for example, was. 2,060 points or something silly like that, went down to 800 points, right? So it's it's definitely like, you know, you look at it and go, huh, right? So I can see people doing like gag lists where they're like, ah, I'm just going to take this, right? Um, but will it sort of like have the oomph to win like a GT or be really taken seriously? Uh, I don't think so.
0: All right. Finally, Peter Matt wants to know, between Scary and Brandon in an impromptu game, who would win, what list would you take, and what would your tacos of choice be? I don't know who would win. Let's skip that part of the question. However, um, well, if no, you're no, playing no, don't Brandon, don't skip that tomorrow, part of the question.
1: Right now accolade-wise, Brandon would kick my ass, right? Cuz he's definitely Ooh. he's definitely, you know, shown that he can do it more than I have shown. I would also that put my
0: money on Brandon. It, right? No offense to you, Skary. No offense
1: to me at all like i i trust myself and i know that i'd give him a hell of a game but if anybody has more sort of like tournament experience would be him so i would i would say flag in his corner for experience and understanding like and being able to beat me okay secondly tacos tacos al pastor every time for me
3: ooh and uh I am more of a burrito guy. So I'm just going to take a carne asada burrito with avocado with salsa.
1: Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. See, he's already Mm -hmm. won me over with that as well. (laughs) Now I'm hungry too. (laughs) I had
0: a burrito today and now you guys want me to eat another burrito and that's not good for my health. All right, everyone. Uh, That's it for the patron questions. Thank you so much patrons for asking them. They're very fun to answer. And of course, thank you listeners for listening and supporting the podcast. If you really like what we do here, giving us a like, commenting on YouTube, on FrontlineGaming.org really does help us out a lot. Uh, So please go ahead and remember to do that. And as always, you're the best listeners in the world, and have a good one.